Welcome to The Sweat Room, a podcast of Watermark Wesleyan Church. Get it, got it, give it. Here in The Sweat Room, we dive into today's questions about sports and faith. So the encouragement I want to give people is just continue to put your trust in God. Continue to just put it all on his feet. Continue to uh, allow him to lead you. And um, he'll do what he did for me. And I'm certain that he'll do it for you. But it's all a matter of a desire and a, and a willingness to give it over to him. So Incredible. Whatever you got going through, man, don't ever think it's bigger than God. God bigger than our circumstances. And now here's your hosts. Noah and Bjorn. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the 52nd episode of The Sweat Room. My name is Noah Corston, and alongside my co-host Bjorn Webb, we are so honored and so blessed to have you today for an episode with Keith Morse. Keith was convicted of first-degree murder and was put in Angola prison for 27 years. And in December of 2020, he was released. During his time in Angola, God totally transformed Keith's life and he will talk about that during this podcast. But one of the things that Keith did during his time in prison is he started a ministry called Malachi Dad, and it focuses on helping men become better fathers in the midst of prison and having a better life for their own kids. An incredible, incredible ministry that he will talk about. And he also started a sports ministry within the prison walls. Guys, this is going to be a powerful story. And something interesting about about this specific episode is Bjorn and I usually do do a reflection at the end of each episode and we talk about what stood out to us and what was some of our favorite things about this episode. Well, at the end of this episode, we have joining us for the reflection, Buffalo Bills chaplain, Len Vandenboss. Keith and Len are friends and Len just stops by at the end of this episode just to reflect on his relationship with Keith and something that stood out to him in the podcast as well. Such a powerful episode and we're so honored that you've decided to join us. And if you're new to our podcast, Our motto is get it, got it, give it. We're always in every phase of this, always learning, always teaching, and always applying. And we like to say here at the sweat room as well, everybody has a story. It's just a little bit different platform. And Keith's story is powerful. And before we dive in, highly recommend to get pen and paper out for this episode. And if you really enjoyed today's episode, subscribe, share, and share with a friend. That would help us out a lot as we're spreading this. And go check us out on social at Watermark Sports on Facebook. Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, it's a little bit different. It's that sweat room pod. You can go check us out there and go check out our, our blog at watermarkwesleyan.com slash blog. And just letting you know, I lost my voice for this episode as we go in. I was hoarse. So just means I lost my voice. So it was kind of a bummer. So Bjorn really helped me out in this episode. So without further ado, here is our episode with Keith Morse. We want to welcome to the sweat room, Keith Morse. Keith, welcome to the sweat room. Thank you, brother. Glad to be here. I'm glad to be here. Man, Keith, it is such an honor to have you today. You have such a powerful story, and I love just the beauty of redemption of your story. So, again, thank you for being with us today. And so I want to just jump right into just a little of your story. You just got out of prison, out of Angola. You're in Louisiana. Um I don't want to focus completely on that you were in prison and how I I want to focus on how God has redeemed your story, but how did you end up at Angola prison and how long were you there? Um, in 1994, I was, um, convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life 
in Angola. Now, mind you, our criminal justice system is a lot different. Louisiana is the incarceration capital of the world. So life in Louisiana means natural life. It's like a roach motel. Once you go in, you're never supposed uh, to come out. Um, I actually did, 20, I spent 27 years um, in prison. Mm -hmm. um, I went to prison uh, as a result of being young, you know, naive, impressionable, you know, made um, some very bad decisions. Ultimately, you know, I took someone's life, and the penalty for that decision was a life in prison. Mm -hmm. But I did do 27 years before I eventually got out by the grace of God, obviously. Mm. Wow. Wow, that, yeah, that's that's crazy to hear. And so um, I'm interested to hear a little bit about what it was like when you were in prison. You spent 27 years in there. You, you you mentioned it was a young age. Could you just describe to us and our listeners a little bit of what um, the specific prison you were at was like? Well, yeah. Um, so at one point, Angola was considered to be the bloodiest prison in the nation. And that was a stigma that it carried, you know, years ago. So I, I, I actually, when I came, we were on the remnants. It wasn't the bloodiest prison in uh, the country anymore. However, it was still a, a, a very adversarial, aggressive, predatorial type environment. Again, I was young, uh, inexperienced. My first time ever being in trouble, and here it is, I'm winding up, you know, Angola. So going to Angola... Obviously, I was a little fearful in, in the beginning because I didn't know what to expect. This was a culture shock to me and a completely uh, different experience. Um, so, you know, it was it was really a hopeless environment at the time. Now, the Angola of today is completely different of the Angola 27 years ago when I first arrived. You know, it's a lot more programming now. It's a lot more hope. We have a seminary. Guys are actually beginning to go home now. We start to see, you know, redemption, you know, a mm -hmm. tangible redemption when guys are actually leaving. And it's, and it's giving a lot of guys hope. But when I first came, nobody ever went home. There was nothing to be hopeful hopeful for. Wow. So all you saw was, you know, this combative, aggressive, you know, uh, hyper aggressive atmosphere where guys would, you know, kind of, you know, preying on each other, the, you know, the, the weak, you know, uh, the strong survived off the weak, you know, so it, it was everything that, 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 you know, television, you know, perpetuates when you see the prison movies, you know, that's the prison that I went into at, at a very young age. You know, uh, again, I was inexperienced, so I was like, you know, for me, it was just all about survival. Whatever I needed to do to survive, that's what I was going to do at all costs. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't have a relation with God at the time, so for me, it was just survival. And whatever that meant, that's what I was willing to do in order to see tomorrow and not be subjected to um, the lifestyle that I had seen so uh, many other guys get forced, you know, to participate in. And I think you guys kind of know where I'm going with that one. Yeah. No, that's so good. So how did you eventually come to know Christ during your time at Angola? Um, actually, again, just kind of piggybacking off what I said, the survival mode. I actually had a, a, a altercation with another inmate. And um, I eventually, uh, I, I stabbed him. And, you know, his wounds were, were pretty severe. And at the time, you know, 
there was a new administration that was kind of, you know, building the blocks of what they wanted the prison to look like. And, you know, they had this, you know, zero um, policy for violence. And so he said, if you call with a knife, you're going to do two years in prison and in, in, in extended lockdown. You know, if you actually use it, you're going to do at least five years in extended lockdown. So me, you know, faced with this situation, you know, that uh, I felt a need that I needed to respond. I understood that what the cost and the penalty was going to be if I chose to act this thing out. And, and I acted out. So I understood that I was about to go on solitary confinement for, you know, a very long time. I just stood there about five or six years, you know, in a six by nine by myself, you know, um, as a result of uh, this aggravated fight that I had. But it, it was in that cell, you know, that as I reflect back that that's where I had that was probably the best time of my life, although it was the worst time of my life because that was, that's where I grew at. That's why I had the opportunity to kind of you know, recalibrate my thoughts in terms of who who I desired to be and, 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 and ultimately who God desired for me to be. That's why I met Christ. And I remember, you know, um, the inmate chaplains would come around and the volunteers come around. And we would always talk about scripture because I was always curious, but I had this this intellectual um, desire to want to know everything. It wasn't about faith. I couldn't believe without seeing. Mm -hmm. So I was hearing what they were saying, but I didn't see anything tangible that made me want to believe. And uh, I remember um, the scripture that really resonated to me, and it was Proverbs 3, you know, 5 and 6, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know, do not lean on your own understanding, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he'll set your path straight. Mm. And, you know, the thing that really resonated the most with me, because it said trust in the Lord with all your heart. And it didn't say with all your mind, with all your intellect, it said with all your heart. And that's what I had been living my life, trying to, you know, lean on my own understanding and, 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 and navigate my life through my own personal experience and trying to intellectualize every experience that I had, you know, and... uh so one day I just say, hey, God, you know, if these if these if you are who these guys say you are, then I want to accept you into my life. I want to wow. give my life to you, you know, and uh, and I and honestly, I think a part a portion of that of that confession was saying, hey, I need you to relieve this suffering, too. You know, if you, if you really are God, because I've been in this six by nine, you know, about four years at the time. So I, I really need you to help relieve this suffering. But, mm -hmm. you know, it was. So I'm not going to say it was completely out of a desire to know God. It was it was maybe 80-20, and I'm just being honest to say that I, I want to change in my life. I want to know him. But I had an expectation that hopefully he would relieve the suffering, and, and that didn't happen because I stayed there another two years. But I'm glad that I had that opportunity because that's why I was able to really develop my relationship with God. That's why I began to be able to read Scripture. That's when I be a, being able to pray and and be able to listen and so on and so forth. So my life, my relationship with God was cultivated and nurtured in a six by nine cell where it was just me and him. I was just completely broken. And I was like, okay, God, it's just me and you in here. Mm. You know, so uh, that, you know, that's kind of where things kind of took off. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's crazy to hear that, that this all happened while you were in, you know, solitary confinement in a six by nine. Uh, so could you talk to us a little bit of 
like what what is solitary confinement i you know obviously i know it's you're alone um but what what does that really look like and did you have you know any interactions within those six years with any of the volunteer chaplains and things like that or was this all kind of like did you not have access to them anymore or what did that kind of look like well Again, I can only speak of the culture, you know, in the prison that I was in, but I'm assuming that when you think about solitary, it's, it's all encompassing everywhere, but I'm, I'm sure that some of the restrictions are different if you go in other facilities. But where I was at, you know, I was in a cell for 23 hours a day. I got one hour of rec mm. per day. The chaplains were able to come around maybe once every other week for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. So it wasn't very long that they had because they had to you know, navigate around the whole prison. But uh, I was in a cell all day. I was by myself. I got an hour of recreation. I had no physical interaction with anyone else. So in the cell block that I was at, it's a tier with like 15 or 16 cells. So you could holler up and down the hallway to other people, but you never had any physical contact with anybody. Mm. So I saw people, but I just never got to physically interact with. Wow. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And so can you can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, you said it was four years into your solitary confinement that you really, you know, accepted Christ and you talked about your reasons 80% this, 20% this. What what were those next two years like? Um, after you did say, yeah, God, I, I believe in you and I, you know, I want you to help change my situation get rid of this suffering. What was those next two years like before you finally did get out? Well, uh, obviously the 20%, you know, dwindled very quickly uh, in terms of desire for him to relieve the suffering because I still stayed, you know, in the cell. And I think that was God's way of saying that this isn't a bargaining type of situation that mm-hmm. you need to go in with me and not have any expect you know, any expectations of what I will do, mm-hmm. but you just need to be, be able to develop a relationship, you know, with me. And once I came to that real, you know, realization that that's what I really truly wanted was that relationship, regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstances, uh, is when I began to really feel comfortable about my environment. Because, you know, sitting in the cell by yourself all day can be extremely, you know, depressed and it can be extremely lonely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I always looked at it and I wasn't by myself. The guy was right there with me. So whenever I did start ex- experiencing moments of, you know, depression or anxiety, I would always grab my Bible. It would always be some scripture that I would just flip to that it seems like it was just crafted and designed exclusively for me because that was the comfort that I found, you know, in that moment. So the next two years was about me again, just have an expectation to do with my life and the, and the things that I wanted to do to help change the cultural landscape of the prison, if ever given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Once again, I had life, so I understood that this meant that I may die in prison, but I made a decision, a conscious decision at that point that said that regardless if I'm here, I want to be as productive as I can, mm-hmm. that I want to be able to share with uh, other men what God did in my life with hopes that they could duplicate, you know, uh, that relationship that I had developed with God. So the next two years, again, was, like I said, was more about me learning who he was, you know, and learning his nature and his character and developing that relationship. 
I love that. And that's that's part part of our motto of our podcast is get it, got it, give it. We're always in every phase of this, always learning, always teaching, and always applying. And for you, you're in that learning process of being in solitary confinement. And kind of like you said, developing that relationship with Christ. And I love that. And you wanted to make a difference once you got out. And one of those things for you is you end up going to seminary. How did that happen? Well, um, you know, I got out. I was was fired up, man. Um, I was just like going to church. Again, it it was like, Actually, I felt like I had went home, you know, because I was being reintegrated back into society, even though it was a different aspect of society, <laughs> solitary confinement to population. I was interacting with people, you know, I'm bumping people, you know, I'm having these, these, these dialogues. So I'm in and out of, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the church services and, you know, I just put. I felt a tugging on my heart, you know, to go to seminary because I said that I, you know, um, at the time, I had just started a ministry called Melakai Dads. Um, I don't know why God gave me that vision because I felt it was so many more men more um, qualified and capable of really, you know, administering the, that vision. But God gave it to me. You know, I followed up on it. I was obedient. We ended up getting the ministry started. But I knew in order for me to be able to be effective, you know, you know, as a as a evangelist. I needed to be more equipped. So I felt seminary was my best bet to be more equipped with the word of God, to be able to share it, to be able to teach other men. I know I, know I needed to be as equipped as possible. Seminary gave me that option to do so. Mm. Wow. wow, that's cool. And so did you did you go to seminary while you were still in prison or was this after you got out? No, I was. I went to a seminary while I was in prison. Okay. We actually have uh, the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary has a, a million dollar extension center at the prison. Mm. So the professors actually come in, you know, and we uh, go through the exact same curriculum as those people who would be on campus. So the same education that those guys got, we had the same education by the same professors, you know, and so on and so forth. And we eventually would graduate with uh, BAs in Christian ministry. And they had recently started a master's program uh, right before I ended up leaving. So I really wish I could have taken advantage of the master's program, but uh, I'm thankful to be here right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so what, what did, um, you know, what, what did that look like going to seminary in prison? And I guess another question I have is like, how, how many people, you know, were in this prison with you at the time? Well, um, Angola had the time, you know, roughly about 5,500 inmates total. Okay. Gonna take um, my graduating class in the seminary. I think it was maybe about sixty-five of us. Oh, cool! Uh, that was going to seminary. Um, there were certain criteria that you had to meet to go to seminary. So it wasn't available for everybody, although it was available for everybody. It, it, it didn't matter what religion you were, but you had to have went through a year of. Um, faith-based curriculum, you needed to have a GED, you need to be actively involved in a church service and so on. So, so there, there were some criteria to get in, but anyone who was willing to meet those criteria had access to it. But it was an awesome experience because, you know, just sitting there, I can kind of you know, reflect back that I really felt like I was in college. I really felt productive. I really felt, you know, 
different because he had, um, you know, the seminary guys, we would always get teased a lot, you know, in a good way because we would be coming up the walk with books. You know, we had book bags full of books, you know, and it is we talking about systematic theology as we going up the walk and <laughs> uh, other guys would be like, look, I'm hitting them college boys. They all, they think they so smart. They think they know, <laughs> you know, they know everything, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, that was probably, you know, aesthetically what I felt the most purpose at because I was in an environment in an environment that I felt was conducive for me to learn and grow in. And I was around other people who had that same desire. So, you know, just being that aesthetically did a lot for my self-esteem in terms of me moving forward in the ministry. Mm, wow. Cool. So you eventually end up starting a sports ministry. And I'd love for you to touch on Malachi dad as well, because that's a powerful ministry in itself. So, Tell us a little about Malachi Dad, and then how did you end up starting a sports ministry in the prison? I've never heard of that before, and that's <laughs> so awesome. So tell us about that. Yeah. Um. So fatherhood always has been my my passion. Me growing up, you know, in a household with a stepfather who wasn't as assertive, and a desire to have a relationship with my real father, who, you know, wasn't there in the capacity of that I needed him to be in that I always said that I wanted to be different and I didn't want to be like my real father. Subsequently, I end up in the exact same place that my real father was because actually I met my dad in Angola when I was about seven years old. Wow. And then ultimately my son met me for the very first time in Angola when he was about three years old. So it was this um, cycle of incarceration that was plaguing, you know, my family and, you know, my dad, did 10 years, he got out and, you know, he never came back to prison, but, you know, obviously with me having life and understanding that I could possibly be here longer, do something more proactive to get more involved. Even in my absence, I want to develop a relationship with my son. And the thing that I realized that in prison, that although we all come from different places, I know people like to stereotype all prison and say that, you know, we all the same, but we all come from different educational backgrounds, social economic backgrounds, and so on and so forth. But I think the common denominator that links all us together as men is that we all want better for our children. That even though we made some mistakes, that we didn't we didn't want our kids making those same mistakes. Mm. So you would always hear men talk about the strength that we weaknesses as fathers. So, you know, God just put it on my heart to say, you know, how about we start a, a you know, a ministry that's therapeutic where men could have the opportunity to sit amongst one another and discuss their strength and weaknesses as, um, as fathers and then give it biblical application. So, um, thus the Malachi dad ministry, you know, developed. It started with 40 guys. And uh, to, to date, I think it's in maybe 250 plus prisons across the world. Wow. So a vision that God gave me in prison, starting out with 40 guys, now it's all over the world. You know, and I credit that all to just uh, my obedience and God desire to birth something in me. And at the time, and as I even look back now, I'm like, man, God, why did you choose me? Mm. this big awesome ministry that's all over the world right now and you chose me to be the one you know to facilitate the you know the origins of of this ministry so i'm honored to, it was an obvious honor and a privilege but uh so the foundation of scripture of malachi dad's is the book is in the book of malachi in the fourth chapter the sixth verse where god said i'll return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children you know to their fathers and the great thing about that verse is that it didn't come with any 
um, any, any conditions, any restrictions. God mm-hmm. said, I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So mind you, think about it. In the book of Malachi to the first book of the New Testament is 40 years, I mean, 400 years of silence. Wow. And the last prophetic word that was given in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, the last verse when he, God was talking about fatherhood, about returning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And that just meant so much to me. Wow. And, and, and I think it's very illustrative of, of, of where God sees us as fathers and how he desires us to duplicate the relationship we have with him with our children. So that was really powerful for me. So I wanted to build a ministry based on that um, foundation. And um, so sports was part of a huge part of the social landscape of, of Angola. And so I always said, you know, Hey, if I want to get more involved in ministry, the best way to do so to attract people that I really wouldn't have access to is through sports. Mm. So I got with a couple of guys and say, hey, man, let's let's start our own you know, softball team. And we want to start a ministry team. We want to create a new culture. We want it to look different compared to all of the other teams that's you know, previously existing. You know, we have basketball teams. We have football teams, we had baseball teams, but they all looked the same in terms of the methodology. It was all about if you could play good, then we wanted you on the team. Didn't mind. It didn't matter the character. Mind you, this prison, so it could go down at any given time. You know, there was no discipline on the team. It was just a bunch of, you know, chaos. <laughs> you know? So I said, you know, I won't. I want my team to look completely different. You know, I want to establish this team on character and not necessarily performance. And I want it to be about discipline. I want uh, us to be able to pray with the other team. I just wanted us to look different aesthetically because I understood that the better we look, the more attractive we would be to the non-believers to want to be a part of, you know, of uh, the ministry. So part of, one of the prerequisites that I had on the on, on the team was to say that, hey, you got to go through the class. It was a year-long faith-based class dealing with uh, biblical fatherhood. You know, so if you want to be a part of it, then you have to come through our class. And, you know, guys bought into a hook, line, and sinker. You know, it was started out to be just about ministry. We actually developed a pretty good team. And, uh, you know, we won 10 championships in a row, which was completely unheard of, you know, in prison sports because, you know, and, you know, I kind of modeled everything with this attitude to say, you know, like free agency. I went out and I looked for the better players. You know, we were always attractive. So we always had guys want to come be a part of our team. So I'm like, hey, you want to come be a part of our team? This is what I need out of you. <laughs> you know? you know, we won't be doing any cursing. We won't be doing this. We won't be doing that. So we had a rule. That, you know, because, again, this is our prison, and although we had believers on our team, we also had non-believers on our team. So we would say, hey, uh, if you curse, you got to give us 15 push-ups. <laughs> Everybody kind of like, oh, my. So it initially, just thought it was my rule. So I was always the one saying, hey, I heard that. Let me get my 15, you know. And they knew <laughs> the attitude that I had. Either you're going to do it or you're going to get off the team. It, was, it wasn't it. debatable. It wasn't an option whether or not you were going to, you know, participate in this particular discipline. You know, and they thought out the first, you know, year was always me. Me the one picking out guys. Hey, hey, I heard that. Do this, do this, do that. And then the culture completely shifted where I started hearing 
guys holding each other accountable now. And what really blessed me because, you know, this was like, obviously I can't monitor everybody off the field. I can only see, you know, when we're in close proximity. But it really blessed me because when I used to go up the walk, I used to hear guys holding each other accountable, you know, for curse words, you know. I see a guy doing 15 push-ups on a walk, I already know he must have said something. So I'm like, what'd he say? And then the guy said, well, he said blankety blank. And I'm like, all right, you give me 15. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, the culture completely changed where, you know, we became so attractive to everybody. Everybody wanted to be a part of what we had got, what we had going on. Again, you know, it was unheard of for teams to have five-minute devotions before the game with the other team. It was unheard of to say, look, let's let's pray. It was unheard of to be able to see discipline where guys wasn't going hysterical and 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 cussing like sailors and just, you know, it, so I'm really proud of, of what we did as a team, not only the accomplishments we made in terms of winning, but how we helped change the culture of what, you know, uh, sports begin to look like. Because before you know it, you know, other teams start mimicking some of the things that we were doing in terms of how we celebrate, you know, uh, the cussing rule. So, you know, the culture just completely changed, you know, and I'm, and I'm thankful I don't know what it looks like now, you know, but uh, I, I just want to believe that, you know, if uh, my assistant coach who uh, was still there, who, if he decides to carry the team on, that uh, I'm confident that because the, the structure that, that was developed for so many years, that the guys who are still there will continue to do the thing that's necessary to keep that vision alive. They know how much it meant to me, and I know it meant as equal as much to me as it did to them. Wow. Mm. That's so good. Wow. That's, that's awesome. I, I love hearing that. Just, oh, that's, that's so cool. So through your years in ministry, while still in prison, do you have any, do you have any favorite stories that maybe, you know, came about through these baseball teams or Malachi dads or these year long classes or anything like that? Oh, so many of them, man. I can't, I couldn't, but just to grab one, on both sides, the ministry and the baseball ministry, um, I would get letters from men all over the world telling me how thankful you know they are for me starting this ministry, how it impacted you know their particular lives with with their children, mm-hmm. and that was just so gratifying to me for me to get uh, a letter from somebody in Kenya, and I'm like, wow. man, this is somebody I'll probably ever see a meet in life to get, you know, somebody on the East Coast writing a letter, somebody on Puerto Rico. So I would get letters all the time from guys all over the country, you know, in, in, in certain parts of the world, just to write me a thank you letter. You know, so that really meant a lot to me to let me know that God was using this particular ministry to touch men that I may never come into contact with physically, but yet there's still, you know, a, a vision, a perspective, a new awareness of what it meant to be a man and a father was being birthed in these guys. So, mm, wow. you know, just all those letters all the time was just so gratifying to me to know that, okay, God, you know, you're definitely using this and. I was humbled that he chose me to to start it, but I was even more grateful to see the impact that it was having, you know, abroad. Um, baseball-wise, um, I think one of the better memories that I had um, was, again, just to see the culture change. 
and 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 and, and some of the practical things that we were doing in ministry and seeing how other other teams were beginning to attempt to uh, dupl uh, duplicate it didn't work all the time, but it was just. It was just, you know, great to see them tempted to try to be able to establish some some discipline and some order. But I had this one guy named uh, Raymond. We used to call him BG. He was my shortstop. And Raymond was an exceptional, exceptional athlete. And um, if there's anybody who had the opportunity, the potential to be a you know, professional prospect, it would be him. He was just so good. He was leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else in his arm strength and his bat speed and, you know, just physical. He was just physical gifted. But Raymond came to prison when he was like 16 years old. Mm -hmm. So he was uber immature, you know, uh, and he had a lot of issues. So he came on to the team at a very young age and uh, it was a struggle dealing with him throughout that time because I was always trying to impart in Raymond, but yet the culture was in opposition to what I was trying to instill in him as a person. Now, mind you, he would buy into it, but we would still have you no know, issues at times. But for the most part, you know, I, I made him the captain for a reason because I wanted to instill some leadership in him because I said, okay, if you're the captain and you carrying on like this, what message is he sending to the rest of the team? You know? So, um, Every year he got better. He got better. He got more discipline. Uh, he started growing. Um, Raymond began, you know, uh, when he got his GD, began to get in the program and so on and so forth. And the day that I left the prison, he pulled me to the side and he was like, hey, coach, you know, I love you, man. He hugged me. We talked for a second. He was like, man, if there's one thing I wanted to tell you that, you didn't teach me much about baseball because I was always the best baseball player. <laughs> he said, but you, but you taught me how to be a leader, and I really appreciate that. And it was the things that you taught me as a leader that I'll be able to carry with me for the rest of my life. Wow. So that really meant a lot to me because, you know, he had never told me that before because, you know, for 10 years we were confrontational here and there, you know, and on my way out. But I saw it, but he never said it because, again, we in Angola. Everybody wanted to think that, they doing it on their own and they're not getting help from other people, you know? So, uh, on my, on my way out, he told me that and that really blessed me, you know? Wow. And now, uh, you know, I try to, I try to write him once a week, you know, because I want to continue to be, you know, encouraging, you know, uh, in his life and, and still be a focal point, you know, in his life, even from, um, being on this side uh, of the fence. Wow. But that was really encouraging for me. And so how have you heard, um, you know, from him recently, how's, how's he been doing, um, sort of since you've gotten out? Oh, he, he's doing great. Matter of fact, I heard from him about two or three days ago, but he was just kind of just telling me about what was going on. Mind you, we in the middle of a pandemic in prison. So it's a mm. lockdown within a lockdown. So those guys are moving a lot. No, they're you know, really restricted, but in the, in the midst of the restriction, a whole new culture is developing where this hopelessness, because again, we talking about there was a lot of hope at one point. Guys were starting to go home. Guys were starting to get involved in all of these programs that was helping to change their perception and their direction in life. And now we're in a minimal pandemic. So now you're locked in the dorm with just 
you know, the guys in your dorm, you don't have access to all these other things that you were, that was, you know, really stress relieving and you were growing and so on and so forth. So a lot of guys are beginning to start detouring and going to drugs and other things as a, as a coping mechanism. So when he wrote me a few days ago, he was like, man, coach, I just want to let you know, I ain't getting caught up in all the stuff that's around me. I'm, I'm staying focused. I love you, man. You know, I need you to keep writing me, you know, encouraging me and so on and so forth. So he's still growing, but I'm thankful that that uh, he still choose and allow me to mentor him even from the outside of the gate. Wow. Mm. That is so powerful. So one of one of the guests that we've had on is the Buffalo Bills chaplain, Len Vandenboss, and he will join us for a reflection at the end of this episode. And you developed a relationship with him. How did you two become friends? Oh, man. I met Len... Um, Maybe about 10, 10 years ago, Lynn was um, di- a director over Camp Paradise, which is uh, um, a, a ministry for fathers. So he heard about the Malachi dad, so he decided, hey, I just want to come up and you know check things out. So I remember somebody was up giving a presentation, and I see this little slim, little short white guy across the hall, just, you know, <laughs> across the walkway, just looking at me. And every time I turn around, I just peep out and I see this guy looking at me. And I'm curious, like, I wonder what he looking at me for. I had on one of our baseball shirts that was the Yankee shirt with, you know, with a Yankee hat on. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know who he was at the time, but I think he was just, you know, I was, I looked at so much different from what I had on that just like, made him keep staring at me. So finally I went over there. I'm like, hey, man, who are you? Going? You know, why are you looking at me like that? You know? <laughs> so he told me who he was, and he's like, I was just watching because I was just curious in that shirt. Like, what's up with that shirt? You know, and I'm telling him about the um uh the baseball team, you know, and 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 the ministry, uh the outreach ministry we had through the baseball team. He started telling me that uh he was running back coach for um for Wheaton College at the time. And uh at the time I was playing football and I was a running back for the team that I was on, you know, so he and I began to start talking about sports and we just developed this relationship. Well, then kept coming back and he and I continue to build upon, you know, our relationship until about five years ago. Um, man was like, let's do something on our own. You know, uh, it's a lot of great things going on at Angola, but there's so much potential for so much more. So uh, we kind of put our heads together and came up with the concept of starting the high ground uh, ministry when Lynn um, had access to the NFL. So, you know, uh, I was like, how about if we bring the NFL to prison? Because again, sports is still a big part of the landscape of, 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 of the prison. So Lynn began to start bringing all these NFL players in. We had a two-day revival game called High Ground. But, uh, man, Lynn is one of my best friends, you know, in the whole world. And, you know, uh, I was talking to him yesterday, and he was like, man, it's just a God thing how our paths cross and where we are, you know, where we are today. is like, because I would have never knew apart from coming, you know, to – Angola, you would have never known me, but we we kindred experience, man. I, I love Lynn and anything that Lynn involved in, I'm involved in. You know, and anywhere <laughs> team Lynn go to, that's the team that I'm rooting for. Yes, you know? sir, so, I love that. Lynn in Buffalo right now. I'm all I'm buffaloed out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we got another bill. Go to Detroit tomorrow. <laughs> I'm Detroit out. So wherever Lynn Vanderbilt is at, that's where I'm at. That's I my man. I love it. That, that's so cool. And so. 
Keith, thanks so much for sharing just all of this. Your story has been, been really powerful and impactful. And I, I love what you've had to say about hope and about how, you know, yeah, when you started in Angola, it was a hopeless place. There's no hope of getting out. That never really happened. What's something you would say to someone who's maybe struggling with where they're at in life and, and maybe they don't have hope right now and maybe they're experiencing a little bit of what you did early on in your life when you just had no hope? What, what would you say to them? Um, first of all, I think we think about hope. You know, the Hebrew word for hope is, you know, expectation. And we all have a desire, expectation for something, you know, uh, Hope is this optimistic attitude that, you know, whatever we're going through today will be better tomorrow. Mm. You know, but I think, man, that we got to have, we got to have faith because when you talk about faith, we talk about a person. Now, hope is just saying that things might get better tomorrow. Faith, we can have faith in a person today. You know, and I was, I remember, you know, I always asked by all the volunteers over the years that came through, you know, Angola saying, man, how do you guys, have such hope in such a hopeless situation. Mm. And that was a subjective question. And I'm sure if you asked it to different people, it would be different. But for me, my hope came in my personal relationship with, with, with Jesus Christ and knowing that I had the blessed assurance that the life that I was living as, as adversarial as it was, as uncomfortable as it was, that it was just temporary. That, you know, my hope and my faith was in, you know, in, in God and my relationship, that this was just temporary and heaven was my true destination. So for that person who experienced, you know, hopelessness, man, you know, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's easy to say, hey, you know, get it together, you know, but I don't know a person's struggle. I don't know what they're going through, but I do know that in Christ, all things are possible. And I think if, if more people would be willing to give those things over to God rather than trying to deal with them on their own, that they'll see better results. So for that person, man, I'm saying, you know, Philippians 4.13, that you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that just give it to God, man. Stop trying to wrestle with it yourself because that's what we're making, you know, the mistakes at. That's what we're getting caught up at. That's what we're experiencing, you know, defeat at when we're trying to do it on our own. Mm. If we can truly lean on the person of Christ is where we can see results. And when we can get that, that that and and that doesn't mean that life will be, you know, great tomorrow. You know, as like as I thought that if I gave my life to God, I get out of that cell. That doesn't mean the suffering, you know, instantly is relieved. But what that does mean that you experience a certain level of contentment and knowing that, hey man, no matter what the situation is, no matter no matter what the surroundings is, that I'm in, I'm content in the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ and knowing that. Uh, my salvation is in him and, you know, my faith is in him. Mm. Oftentimes what I've said in this podcast, um, I, I said it to one of our previous guests, I think it was Bob Schindler. And I quoted Proverbs 3, 13, 12 to him. And I, 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 that verse says, walk with the wise and become wise. And I think you're a wise leader. You've learned so much just in your life and during your time in prison. And now that you're out, I'd love to ask, what is next for Keith? What What is next for you, man? Um, so um, while I was in prison, I did, um, I, write, I wrote a book called Finding High Ground, um, a spiritual guide for incarcerated men. So 
what's next for me is I'm in the I'm in the process right now. I'm trying to get the book published because I have the expectation that when I wrote the book, that my heart's desire to see that it was in every prison across the country. I don't know how I'm going to make that happen, but my desire is to say that the impact that it had in Angola, because I'm always getting great reviews, guys telling me something about, you know, that was in the book that inspired them, that motivated them. Uh, it's a curriculum, eight-week curriculum, that I want to be able to promote guys to experience uh, Christ. So I want to be able to get that um, in every prison across the country. Again, don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm just believing in God that it's going to happen at some point. Uh, my wife and I have a nonprofit organization called Above Community. It's an acronym for the bridge to enhance the lives of offenders and victims through education and dialogue. So, you no, know, I really want to be an agent of change, you know, in our community. I want to use our nonprofit as a vehicle to start reaching some of these at-risk youths to hopefully we can start, you know, creating some some deterrence in some of these kids' lives out here. Um, I want to continue to be active in prison ministry. Um, soon as things open back up, I, you know, I plan to go back to Angola as much as the warden allows me to come. And he did tell me I had free access to come as much as I wanted to come. So uh, between ministry and reform, prison reform and ministry are the two areas that I really want to, you know, concentrate on and hope that God will get an increase to continue to prepare and equip me to be as effective as, as possible. You know, again, the same success that I had in prison, my prayers, God will give me the wisdom to duplicate those things here in society where I can be an agent of change yet too. Wow. Wow. That, that, that's so cool. And I love that you're still passionate about what God laid on your heart when you were in prison and you're still finding ways to, to push forward with that, that dream and that hope that, that God's given you to share with others. So th thanks so much for, for being with us today. Um, it's been a blessing and an honor to hear some of your story. Um, just as we finish up here, are there any final thoughts or words of encouragement for our listeners? You know, uh, Isaiah 40, 31, if I'm not mistaken, said, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Um, they shall mount on eagles like uh, wings like eagles. They shall you know, run and not get weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, So the encouragement I want to give people is just continue to put your trust in God. Continue to just put it all on his feet. Continue to uh, allow him to lead you. And um He'll do what he did for me, and I'm certain that he'll do it for you, but it's all a matter of a desire and a, and a willingness to give it over to him. So Incredible. Whatever you got going through, man, don't ever think it's bigger than God. God bigger than our circumstances. Amen. Amen. Wow, that, that's so good. Yeah, thanks Thanks so much for joining us today, Keith. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And again, man, if there's anything that I can do moving forward to help you guys, you know, I love to see young people you know, in ministry, you know, you always see the old guys, you know, <laughs> you know, in ministry, you know, so for me, and that was the thing I had, you know, in prison, that it was always so edifying to see the younger guys coming to church. And those are the ones that we would always try to deal with, understanding that they were the, they were the future. So, you know, thank you guys for doing what you're doing. I wish you nothing but success. And uh, I'm just praying that God continue to give you guys an increase. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, Keith, thank you for joining us today on the SWAT room. And magically, my voice is back, Bjorn. So this it's is great. Back. It's back. Here we we're, go. we're back and ready for this reflection. And joining us for a reflection today is Buffalo Bills chaplain, Len Vandenboss. Len, thanks for joining us for the reflection. My pleasure. Anytime. So, Len, what, what did you think about today's episode with, with Keith? 
Yeah, it was it was a little surreal to be honest with you to listen to Keith. Um, you know, uh, I met Keith. Uh, I think 2008 or nine. So it's been over 10 years. Um, and, you know, all the times I've met him and, and visited him, you know, he was in Angola prison. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, he's been out since I think December, right before Christmas, maybe. Um, yeah. But to just, you know, hear him talk to you guys to reflect on what he's been doing uh, to, uh, you know, I talk to him a couple times a week, so I know what's going on in his life, but it's just kind of, it's just, it's, I love that his story is being shared, you know, beyond the prison walls. Yeah, absolutely. And I really enjoy just hearing a story of, I, I, the point of the podcast of today's episode was not really to focus on, oh, this is your time in prison, but to see how God was just redeemed his life mm-hmm. and the curriculum, even with Malachi dad and starting the sports ministry. And it's being, it's being placed in 250 prisons across the world. That's incredible. And the stuff that you guys were doing with high ground and revival was amazing. Bjorn, what were some of your thoughts as well? Yeah, I, I loved his story and I, I couldn't help but reflect on, Um, some of Jesus's disciples while talking with him Mm. about how, man, God has really used Keith in an amazing way. And Keith was what some would say is, you know, even by our world standards, maybe less than a normal guy. Mm. Now I hate to say that because that's not the case, but that's sort of how our world views it. He was a convict. He was in prison. And I look at the disciples and, you know, we've got fishermen, we've got normal guys, but we see how God used them for so much more mm-hmm. and how God has just so much potential in all of us to reach so many. And so I loved seeing that of, wow, like, yeah, God is working in, in prisons. Mm-hmm. God is working in the lives of these men to reach so many. And you mentioned like 250 prisons, like that's, that's it's unheard incredible. of. That's wild. So I just love that little parallel. And it reminded me that no matter how normal I think I feel, that God can do amazing things through me and through you and through all of our listeners and through you, Len, is that there's no limit to what God can do with, with what we are. So that, that was one of my biggest reflections Mm. from this episode. Yeah, it was so good. And Len, how have you seen God really move in Keith over the years, over the last 10 years, you've really got to see God really work in his life. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I want to say that whole story about me looking at him and he's wearing the Yankee, you know, that is complete falsehood. Okay. <laughs> that whatsoever. Uh, uh, but I remember when I, my first time I came down to Angola, I got invited on kind of a vision trip and I got invited, uh, it's a Monday night. They do Malachi dad. So Malachi dads is a, like a year long program that Keith wrote, uh, with a guy, uh, a guy from Moana that kind of the two of them kind of dreamed it up, uh, in the mid, 2000s 2005 or so maybe um but they uh i was sitting in the back of the class there would be you know 40 50 guys going through malachi dads every year and i mean every monday night homework bible study memorization i mean it's a whole deal and so i was sitting in the back and keith was teaching the class and i just remember just going what in the world is going on here you know i'm in i'm in angle you know the largest maximum security prison in the united states Mm. It's dark. It's like 9.30 at night, and there's 50 guys crammed into this old classroom with chalkboards, taking notes, Bibles open, learning about how to be a dad while incarcerated, right? I'm thinking, what, <laughs> what is God up to here? <laughs> and that's how I met Keith. I mean, uh, the next couple of days, we share a couple of meals together, and 
we just immediately hit it off. Mm. Um, and then I, over the years, I would I visited there two or three times a year for the last ten years, and uh. been there many many times. And Keith has become you know a dear friend and, and ministry partner. But as I learned his backstory and the circumstances that led up to his incarceration, you know, uh, and the first four or five years, as he told you guys in the interview, where he was, you know, uh, in a place they call Camp J, which is 23-hour-a-day lockdown because of violent behavior, um, you know, the, the, uh, the way that God can take, like you mentioned, Bjorn, some of the, the most unknown people, that's a better way to say it than I yeah, did. You know, unknown, right? And and uh, someone that is completely marginalized in the bottom of society, yet God met him in that prison cell. Uh, he wanted to just re- re-engage with the, the son who was less than a year old when he went into prison. Mm. That really fueled him to, you know, begin a ministry on how do we, you know, how, how do dads who are inside a prison, and there's thousands of them, you know, how do they reconnect with their children who are on the outside, who oftentimes the mother of that child tells the child at some point that your father's dead, mm-hmm. your father's, you know, never coming back. How do how do they overcome all that to, to gain entrance into their child's life and actually be a dad? I mean, it, when I was listening to what they were trying to do, I thought this is impossible. Mm-hmm. It's just an impossible, it's hard enough being a dad when you're with your kids all the time to do it from inside a prison and all those other obstacles I mentioned, it just was, um, you know, but only God, right. Takes all that tragedy and all that pain and brings something good out of it. So Mm. Keith has been at the, at the forefront of that ministry, you know, from day one. And, and, uh, it's just been incredible. Yeah. So Len, as you mentioned, you talk with Keith, you know, a couple times a week, you're in contact with him frequently. What, what have you learned through Keith and what God has taught Keith and through Keith's story? What have you learned either about God or about your own personal faith? What, what have you learned through this? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned to love about Keith is Keith is honest. Mm-hmm. Keith is so authentic and inside of prison, outside, you know, in, in society that we are in, right? There's all kinds of counterfeit, all kinds of um, uh, people that put on masks. And that was one of the things that attracted to me, to Keith from the very beginning was his authenticity. Mm. And one of the things I've learned, uh, you know, through our relationship is that like God loves authenticity. He can deal with it, right? He says, you know, you can be a, a sheep or be a wolf. Just don't be, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. I can, I believe Jesus says, hey, I can deal with, if you're, if you're a bad guy, if you're a wolf or you're, you're a sheep, I can deal with you. Mm. But if you're inauthentic, if you're not uh, real, mm. I don't have a lot of use for you. It's, it's tough. And Keith's awesome authenticity, his honesty, his transparency has been so refreshing uh, in my life. And it's challenged me to be the same back to him. That's mm. awesome. Wow. So good. Len, thanks for joining us today. And such a good episode with Keith. Really powerful story. And I just love that Christ is in the business of redeeming so many people. And Keith is just playing a small part in this big world. So Len, thanks again for joining yeah, us. Appreciate you guys reaching out to him. I know it was, uh, it was, uh, it's part of his journey now that he's on the outside is mm-hmm. to tell his story 
and begins to learn how, you know, what's next for him. Uh, yeah. Any opportunity that we can to help him, um, you know, is what we want to be about. So appreciate Amen. you guys uh, connecting with him. Such a great interview. And next week, everybody, we are so excited to be featuring Randy Gravett. You see, he's good friends with one of our former guests, Dan Webster. And this is a great interview. Randy stops by, talks a little about sports, faith, and He's huge in the leadership world. You see, he's worked with companies like Chick-fil-A, the Pittsburgh Pirates. He's done work with the Buffalo Bills. He's an all-around leader. So excited for this episode. Here's an excerpt. I, I'm, I'm just like everybody else that's listening. I'm like, I don't, I don't, you know, do I want to work out today? Probably not, but I never regret it when I do. After it's over, I'm like, you, you just, you know, I always say you never regret doing the right thing. And truthfully, you you do regret it when you know what to do and then you don't do it stuff you have control over. You don't show up for your workout. You don't go to, you don't go to sweat. And mm-hmm. and the next thing you know, you're five pounds overweight or, you know, and then a year later, you're seven pounds overweight and a year later. And, and you just drifted from greatness. And, and, you know, my friend Mark Miller always says, no, no one drifts to greatness. I mean, it's like, you've got to be intentional. You got to show up. Yeah. And we think about that from nine to five, but, but, Man, I think so many times we don't really think about what happens from five to nine. Thanks for listening to the Sweat Room Sports and Faith Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. If you'd like to stay connected with us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Watermark Sports, on Twitter at Sweat Room Pod, and our new blog at watermarkwesleyan.com slash blog. Until next time, get it, got it, and give it. Thanks for listening to the Sweat Room, a podcast of Watermark Wesleyan Church. 